This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. All right, so we are mixing things up quite a bit today. We are joined by uh, Carol Hooven, who is an evolutionary biologist with uh, Harvard University, and she has also uh, recently wrote the book uh, T, the story of testosterone, the hormone that dominates and divides us. Um, So we thought it'd be really interesting because uh, Carol has a special interest in female to male transitioners such as ourselves and the effects that testosterone has on a natal female's uh, brain, body, et cetera. Uh, So we're basically mixing things up in such a way that uh, Carol will be hosting today and asking us questions (laughs) and uh, being interviewee rather than, or interviewer rather than interviewee. Um, And we also brought Mars Fernandez back. He was on a few episodes ago. He's also a fellow uh, leader with Gender Dysphoria Alliance. We brought him back on because uh, he's got a, uh, uh, he transitioned more recently than uh, Aaron Kimberly and myself, um, who was a decade and more ago for each of us, um, whereas Mars was just three or four years ago. Um, so yeah, we're just going to hand things over to Carol. You can feel free to introduce yourself further than my my quick shoddy job there. And yeah, then I'll let you okay, ask great. us whatever. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And yeah, we've already, we've been talking a little bit already and I'm already getting a little emotional about a lot of different things. And um, I don't think I I know how to host. I'm definitely going to ask you some questions, but I'm not really prepared in the host department. We don't properly do it either. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, by way of introduction, yeah, I have been at Harvard for about 20 years. I, I'm just going to say I'm not like a lot of the other um, long-term instructors here. I didn't graduate really. I didn't have a diploma from my high school. I didn't go to class. I smoked a lot of pot. Um, I wasn't, I just did not have it together. So I wasn't this person who's always been perfect. And now I'm at Harvard. It's the whole different, very different story that I won't go into, but I think it's important that people know sometimes that, uh, people who you might, you know, yeah, I wrote a book. It's doing well. I'm really proud of it. It was um, something I'm absolutely fascinated by, which is testosterone and how it shapes all of our lives in really important ways. And I think you guys have an incredible insight that no one else can have into the power of testosterone because the three of you, you know, you transitioned at different ages, but you lived the most of most of your life so far um, as females as women with high estrogen and low testosterone. And you're very, very different physically, emotionally, psychologically, socially now um, because of testosterone. And I don't mean just because of how it acts in your brain, which it does, um, but because of how it changed your bodies and and what that says to the world and how that changes uh, how you feel on the inside, right? So part of why you take it, right, is because you want your body to match how you feel. So I have a ton of questions and I wish I had written them down in a more organized order, but I guess, and since there's three of you, I'm not, you guys, I'm not sure that, you know, each person should answer each question or else we'll be here for like a week. Um, but what I do want to know is just your 
story. And I know some of your listeners, maybe most of your listeners already know. So maybe you just want to give a, a sort of brief background, but that will help me. I, I know a little bit about um, the Aaron's experience with gender dysphoria. And cause you, you talked about that on a, on a recent podcast and sort of how that felt to you. And I should just say for starting um, one of the things I'm interest, really interested in is the role of culture and how you think uh, your gender dysphoria might've been different if there were a place for, um, I, I don't know if you, I'm assuming you guys were lesbians and um, do you use the term butch lesbian or what term, if, if that is correct that you were, I think lesbians, um, what term would you use to describe sort of your role um, just starting out so, so we can get the language straight. So I, usually, use, I use the word butch. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, w- I was the only one of us who was not a lesbian prior to okay. transitioning. Um, I was uh, exclusively attracted to men prior to transitioning. And then post-transition, uh, I became attracted to, uh, to women uh, pretty quickly after starting trans- uh, testosterone. Um, but that's, a, that's the kind of a, a bit of an unusual case. It's, no, no. I, um, Kalisti, who I interviewed in my book, had the same thing happen. And so did Elle, the detransitioner. So mm-hmm. two oh, okay. out of the three trans okay. people I interviewed had that. And I read about it in the literature. It is Pretty not common. super common, but it does happen. And it's so interesting. So Aaron, I also, I had a student of mine who um, was female and she was attracted to men and she transitioned while she was my student. And I got to see not finish. Cause I don't know when the finish is, but start, you know, I got to see three years worth of transition and she would come and tell me, sorry, he, um, in the end would come and, uh, tell me about all the changes. And that's also, as you know, less common. Um, so I'm interested. So this is great. So we have different experiences. So you were heterosexual, um, do you like to say heterosexual, androphilic, gynophilic, what kind of, <laughs> sorry, terms. No, there's, it's great. A uh, great term. I think androphilic and gynophilic is a really accurate way to put it because yeah. it's, kinda, it's unchanging Clearer. with the, you know, the person Actually, yeah. again, in my, um, I, I guess I would say androphilic. I, um, I, it was more for me, um, attraction to men. It was the same feeling as envy and attraction to women didn't exist because I just saw women as a gross extension of my own body. Right. Like it was, um, it was, it's hard. It's not, uh, it's, it's not as easy to put into like heterosexual. Ver- I guess. Oh yeah. It was, I was heterosexual and that I was a female predominantly attractor, exclusively attracted to males. Um, then I transitioned. The relief from dysphoria, I think, is what kind of triggered what would probably an existing gynophilic attraction is what I've kind of um, uh, surmised. I could be. Okay, you, sorry, you got to slow down. Hold on. <laughs> sorry. Um, so because I'm still working with the um, concept of um, uh, androphilic. Okay. Uh, females who want to transition. Do you know what percentage of, and I don't want to, not counting the last like five years, <laughs> um, but what percentage of people maybe in your age group or something who transitioned say more than five years ago, uh, peers of yours say who would um, would have had a androphilic uh, orientation who are female, who then had dysphoria and, and went through a transition. 
I, I don't know what that percentage is. I know it's going to be quite low or, or relatively low. Yeah. Um, uh, like less than 10%. Per, 10% no, pro- probably not less than. Okay. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe ballpark around that around that part. I, I, I honestly can't answer that uh, accurately. Aaron, you're more a little bit more familiar with the, the, the literature in that regard. I don't know if you have a better better answer to that percentage as far as. Yeah, I don't know how the numbers break down, you know, and it, I'm probably just in terms of, you know, anecdotally from what I saw in the community 15, 20 years ago, it seemed like it was a lot of the Bush lesbians that were transitioning and yeah. um, I mean, when trans men date trans men, I don't know what we call that. Like, or they would call themselves gay men, but yeah, that's but confusing that's, to me how we get, but yeah, no, but so, so Aaron T, can you, I can get intuitively and from people I've talked to, I can get the butch lesbian thing. That makes sense to me. It's gender non to me, and and this is something we can talk about. You know, it's it's gender nonconformity. There isn't a place, perhaps, um, it's uncomfortable. And I think the process of gender development there, in you know, if you're going to grow up to be a butch lesbian, I think that must be very uncomfortable and confusing in terms of what sex am I here, or what am I comfortable with, or who am I comfortable with. So I can really easily see that not easily but i can get that and it i think a lot of people under just understand that kind of intuitively um but aaron t i don't think i think it's harder to understand what you're talking about or what you went through so i think that would be interesting for me anyway to learn more about your experience um sure yeah um, so I did have gender dysphoria for as long as I can remember, a very, very um, constant, just obsessive feeling that I was supposed to be a boy. Um, and then I, I kind of anticipated growing out of it. I was very ashamed of it. Um, and I anticipated growing out of it. I never were you did. A to- were you a tomboy? Extremely so. Yeah. Were you yeah, really was- into sports and not that kind sports. of thing? I was, or- it wasn't, I mean, I played sports with my brother and friends and stuff like that. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't really sporty or competitive in that way. Um, I was very, um, all about like, um, the woods and just kind of, kind of being like, uh, you know, building things, building forts, tree houses, um, uh, just kind of, I mean, I played with the boys. It was always like, you know, um, cops, robbers, cowboys, Indians, that kind of stuff. Um, I, I kind of avoided playing with my sister and, and any other females in the, in the vicinity. They were, they playing with dolls and things like that. Yeah. I can, I just, I can kind of relate. I used to, I was, in, this was back in the like early seventies. I was playing little league. I was climbing trees. I, I wrote in the book that I dismembered my friend's Barbie dolls and stuff, which I did. <laughs> I like loved pulling their heads off and I thought they were silly and I hated dolls and dresses. And, um, and I had three older brothers, but I still had, a femi- some sense of femininity. Did you, feel any sense of femininity or did you just feel like I don't identify with girls? They like silly, dumb stuff. I want to play with the boys. They're rough and tough. Um, yeah. Can you, so did you just feel, wait a minute, the ones I want to play with are boys and the ones I feel more like are boys, even though you didn't, you didn't feel, um, attract any attraction at any point to women. You felt a more boy like, yeah, I, I I related with better and identified better with the boys. I wanted to be around the boys. Um, I wasn't obviously not like in, a, in a, an attraction way at that point at all. And um, 
kind of sexual attraction didn't come in until much, much later in my late teens. Um, yeah. But I mean, there were certainly things that I did enjoy. I mean, there were, you know, female friends that I had who I enjoyed like doing crafting projects with and things like that for a little while. But like, yeah. but I didn't, um, you know, I, I certainly gravitated much more toward the boys, but there weren't like, it wasn't, yeah, it, it wasn't like, oh, I hate all things girly. It wasn't exactly okay. like that. No, it wasn't like an so the, version. the thing that seems hard for me to reconcile is if you're attracted to males and you want to be sexual with males, one of the worst things you could do is grow a beard. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't, I would think, unless they're gay. Um, so can you, you know, if you are attracted, yeah, that's maybe you were attracted to gay males. So you wanted to grow a beard. So interesting. Yes. So yeah. Help okay. me with that whole sex <laughs> part. So I was, um, I was, I was primarily attracted. Yes. To gay men. Um, when I, as in my a 20s, female, as a female, yes. Yes. I, I was much more interested in gay men than straight men. But at the same time, also remember oh. I, I had a lot of sex dysphoria about my body. I didn't want sexual attention from straight men. Right. I then, you know, I didn't because that to. would because that would affirm your or that would expose or whatever you want to call it, your womanhood. Right. Your because femaleness. Right. Yes, and that I, you didn't want that. So if you were right. sexual with a heterosexual man and he expects you to be feminine sexually and that that was very uncomfortable for you. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. Oh. Yes. Yeah. OK. So, um, yeah. So I was very, very uncomfortable in that context. Um, but. So when I, but when I ultimately decided to transition, yes, I didn't think that, uh, I, I wasn't thinking, oh, I'll get gay men to sleep with me. Certainly not. It was more like, it, it was more of the sex dysphoria in my own body. It was much yeah. more paramount than attracting a partner, either male, yeah. female, straight or gay. Um, it was much more, a, a, so I wasn't thinking, oh, I'll alter my body in a way to be sexually appealing or sexually repulsive. That didn't really come into the, the, the equation. So, yeah, no, me. that's interesting. Okay. And, um, the, Obviously, you know, I know you said anything's on the table, but this is, a, I think, a sensitive question. Did you have other psychological issues or comorbidities as, you know, they are in the literature? Did you have other stuff going on that you think contributed to any of this? Or this is just something organic that you had like a perfectly fine life, but this thing you had, you felt masculine. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I thought that as well. So no, but no, there's not no abuse or any sort of trauma or anything like that, that happened to me. But there's a lot of when I realized like kind of how I felt about my body and what that kind of, kind of, um, uh, kind, kind of seems like it, it's like trauma seems to be like the most uh, logical explanation, but I never had any. Yeah. Um, I think, I think, and I can only kind of surmise this. I don't know for certain, but uh, but there was so much shame that I had around feeling like a boy and behaving like a boy. I feel like so much, like there's a lot of like internalized, um, it's, it's hard yeah. to explain, but I think it was no, like a, I, a so sex disorder was a result of that yeah. shame. But so can you now talk about the role of your culture or your, your social environment where you grew up in terms of religion, in terms of values? Did you not see other little girls who are like super tough and tomboyish or was there nothing sort of in your, um, were you, where did that shame come from? Do you think? Um, so interestingly, well, I grew up pretty sheltered. So in his current conservative Christian environment, I was homeschooled. Um, oh, okay. Although all the women in my family were, well, except interestingly, as I said, is my mom, who's quite 
innately masculine, but also very obsessed with this conservative notion of men do this, women do this. And it's very, um, you know, homemaker, wife, mother is what you're going to be. And I've rejected that entirely. Um, But uh, but no, I didn't really have any any example other than my dad, who I felt much more connected to and related to more than my mom, my older brother, um, and then my sister is three years younger than me. Um, so I think I think a lot of my kind of male identification had to do with a having an older brother. I think you you kind of understand that a little bit from what you were talking about when you were younger, is having three older brothers and that kind of kind of shape uh, what your influence or your kind of. Uh, hobbies, interests, I don't know. But I feel like perhaps I was doing some sort of mirroring with my older brother, who was, for the most part, my only playmate in my early uh, early development. Um, uh, and, and yeah, then as I got older and like my primary curriculum was about the Bible and home ec, and it was just very much, uh, it felt very restrictive, whereas I could be outside running around and, you know, playing gunfights uh, with my brother and friends um, is, um, was, sounded a lot more appealing. Uh, Did your... Um- parents or anyone else in your community kind of try to feminize you and just sort of did they sort of say no you shouldn't be playing that game or you need to be playing with dolls or yeah like you're saying there was more of an emphasis on domestic concerns etc but so did you then do you think that you internalize that the way I feel is wrong yes yeah so because it was again it was my mom who was basically saying you know you're a girl, God made you a girl, girls behave this way, do that, do this. It was very, I don't remember any of my behavior that led to those conversations. I just remember frequently having those conversations about what girls do, how girl, what girls wear. Uh, she was constantly trying to get me to wear dresses. I wouldn't do it, but somehow she framed it around, this is what God wants you to do. Um, and so it was very, there was, there was no distinction between, you know, religion and, and gender. Uh, and you believe normativity. in God. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like you really felt that yeah. deeply. And did you feel you're betraying God or you're um, not yes. living yes. up to God's standards or expectations or whatever? And you had no other perspective. No. You were homeschooled. Right. Yeah. I was homeschooled. Yeah. There were, I mean, there were other kids in like Sunday school that we went to and whatnot. But, um, but yeah, again, I, I kind of just gravitated towards the boys in any, okay. any, any environment where there were other kids. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's, yeah, I, thank you. It sounds like you were just a really masculine girl mm-hmm. who was going to be attracted to men. And you had a lot of internalized shame about your, what you felt on the inside and what you, your body was. Because according to your body, you were supposed to, God and your family and everyone mm-hmm. said you're supposed to be something else and you're not mm-hmm. being that. What the hell is wrong with you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And now yeah. you've resolved that. Yeah. Yeah. In a very roundabout way. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I'm, and I'm sorry that that was your, I don't know, maybe you feel like it was that way and that made you who you are and you're okay with it. But um, I don't think that should happen to. I, I became quite um, like, I don't know. I was, I, I made this comparison recently. It was kind of cut, became quite uh, introverted and just started living. I think this is what what leads because I, I didn't outgrow it, right? I didn't outgrow this this kind of uh, isolating and um, um, kind of fantasizing about about life as actually a male. And so so I kept thinking I would outgrow it. But then the more you see, the more you indulge that fantasy, the less likely. I think that's that yeah. part of what what yeah. what led into it as well as like this this kind of isolating living living the life of of um, 
I made the comparison to the movie um, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, where it's like just this this constant fantasy is much more much better, much more um, enjoyable than than um, you know reality. what what yeah what your body communicates to reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah. And what about Aaron or Mars? Do you want to jump in? Yeah. <laughs> um, thanks for having me on here. Uh, by the way, Aaron's. Um, when uh, God, I don't know where to start. Well, for one, uh, I could definitely relate to. Uh, when you were talking about your mother kind of having, uh, being very innately, uh, masculine. And, um, I could relate to that. Like I grew up, uh, I grew up in a, it's, it, they weren't really strict, but I grew up in a Cuban household. Um, and I think that, or at least in my view, Hispanics are very much more, uh, hung up on these, you know, gender stereotypes. So growing up, everything was great. Uh, I was able to be the tomboy that I was, um, you know, run around shirtless. Um, my mother was very much a tomboy, but she, when she would go out, you know, she would sometimes wear a dress and stuff. So I think her perspective, much, uh, like, uh, Aaron was talking about was, you know, at home it was, everything was fine, but when you go out, there's a certain way that you should behave based upon the fact that you're male or female. This wasn't something that they, enforced in those words but i i started to kind of i think get that idea you know when i was for example thrown into uh, modeling classes right this was a very traumatic thing for me and i remember trying to run away from home because of it and i think the idea was because i was very shy uh, that was one but uh though though they never actually verbalized this i think the other part of it was well there has to be a way to i guess get me to conform i think you know, I don't think that they would ever admit this and I don't really want to have that conversation with them, but, but I, I believe that that could be behind it. Um, but growing up, I was uh, generally a happy kid until I was forced into these, uh, you know, uh, expectations based on my, my gender. But I, I was a tomboy. I was shy, but I liked, I liked playing with the, the boys. I would play with the girls too, but not right away. Um, and if I did, it wasn't the same experience. So, um, just like, uh, the errands here, <laughs> I find myself unpacking a lot of this now, now, you know, I, I know that I haven't been transitioning for a long time, but, but I think deeply about, uh, the root cause of my dysphoria and how I came about to be the way I am. And honestly, the only thing I can think of is that I, I feel as though, uh, growing up, I almost romanticized the idea of, being a man and everything that comes with it and how could I achieve that well there's this there's this way out and if I could just transition even if it's tr- a trans man and not actual a literal male um then yeah why not that makes sense not only will it take and were you attracted life, to yeah. males or females females mm-hmm. and when did you know that um when I, I started thinking about it around probably 13 but it wasn't until late teens that I, I really started to think I have to at least be bisexual because I really seem to be drawn to women and I felt weird around women. So, but I didn't really pay attention to, um, sexual orientation very much. I was, uh, I, I was the kind of kid that really spent a lot of time in their head, like fantasizing and just writing stories. And so I didn't really think about that too much until later on in life. Until when, when later on in life did you start? Do you mean you you didn't mm. have strong sexual feelings or? Yeah, I didn't. Okay. Um, 
yeah. Until when, when do you feel like that you started to have those feelings? Probably around like, I would say 18 or 19. Okay. Yeah. And is that more when you, you started feeling like I want to be a man? Um, not necessarily. No, I think I've always, and I don't know that I ever put it in those words as a child, but I definitely always wanted out of being a female because of the female body or, and, and, and this is where I honestly don't know why that is. I've never had anything traumatic happen in, in my childhood or anything. Um, but did you also not have role models for how you could be in your body and just express your masculine nature? Hmm. No, I don't think that's it. Honestly. Um, you did or did not have those? No, I, I, uh, I don't know. I don't really, I've never been the type to really think about role models a whole, a whole lot. Um, I think that's just examples, examples. Of, of what's possible. Hmm. Yeah, no, I don't know. A lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, back then, uh, I can think of a lot of characters that were female and maybe rough around the edges, like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or, or kind of like a badass character. Um, I don't know that they necessarily qualify as like a butch female, but like, yeah, for example, this, I don't know how good of an example this is, but the legend of Billie Jean, like she was a badass who fought back because a guy hit on her or tried to sexually. Right. Right. Um, I I didn't really, yeah, I don't know. I'd never feel personally me. I understand how that could maybe cause somebody to feel like there there's nobody out there like them. But for me, I, it wasn't that I didn't think I could be um, a a butch uh, lesbian. It was that um, I wanted to be. And because I felt, I don't know how to put it into words. I think that, masculinity and femininity is a big part of transgender or transsexual that that's kind of what I've summed up uh it's a big portion of it and I think that my masculinity being masculine as as a female for me personally it goes so far that uh apparently I will do whatever it takes to be this sort of uh hyper masculine version of myself and how can I do that well I could probably do that by transitioning and that's what I've thus far come up with for me is that I don't have any uh, okay. trauma in my background, but that I'm, I feel so masculine throughout my whole life. And here's this, this way that I can be masculine and it's so much better. And, and that's kind of where I'm at right now. So you feel there's more freedom for you now? Um, yes, uh, not necessarily. I mean, I guess freedom okay. as far as I could take my shirt off, but otherwise I never really felt, uh, this is where I disagree with some people that, that follow me because uh, I've never really felt as though uh, a woman can't can't do something because she's a woman. I understand that males and females are different, and obviously there are d- advantages and d- disadvantages. But I never really saw the world like, oh man, I can't do this because I'm a woman. Um, I did feel like, and I do feel like, obviously there's certain attention from males that I don't get now. But again, this was not something that was traumatic for me ever in my life. Okay, I, I didn't get hung up on that at all. Yeah, thanks. Mm-hmm. No, thank you for being here. My my story has a lot of overlap with both both Aaron's and and Mars. Um, in the way that I would describe my childhood, it was like growing up on on the set of Little House on the Prairie, a very small town, uh, farming community, um, a, a large Mennonite population, um, mm-hmm. and. I remember, like as a kid, visiting Hutterite um, colonies and. Um, and there was just there was zero plot line for somebody like me. Like, where does a masculine 
lesbian fit into Little House on the Prairie. I don't remember them having an episode on that. So, <laughs> so I think that was a big part of how my gender dysphoria developed. It wasn't conscious at the time, but I think when I had no way in my environment to make sense of who I was and what I was experiencing, my mind had to, had to do something with that. Um, Cause I think my masculinity was just innate to, to me as a person. Yeah. Um, when, I, when I was 19, I was diagnosed with um, an intersex condition. I had at least one ovotestes that was discovered by accident. And so that at that time that really, further confused my gender. I mean, in some Sorry, ways, when, it, what, how old were you when that, when you found I'm that out? 19. Can, have you shared about all of the details about that on your podcast already? I don't know if I have shared, I've mentioned it, but I don't know how much detail I've, I've given in the past. Um, Cause I mean, I had that, that the, you know, the classic gender dysphoria presentation of just really feeling like a mistake had been made. And then I really was a boy in some way. Um, you said you were 15. I was 19 when, when the intersex condition was diagnosed. Okay. Okay. Sorry. But, but gender dysphoria for as long as I can remember. Like, can I ask more questions about the intersex condition? Yeah, sure. Do you yeah. know, do you have any genetic anomalies that you know of or differences I, or? I didn't have genetic testing done. The, the surgeon, I think that, that diagnosed it, cause it was diagnosed by accident. So I was having a lot of gynecological problems. And it developed a very large grapefruit sized cyst on one of my ovaries that was causing me a lot of pain. And so the, the surgery was just to remove that cyst. And when they, when they did the surgery and, um, and opened me up, he said that the, that the ovary was unrecognizable as an organ. So it was sent for biopsy. And that's when they discovered that it had some tes- testicular tissue and, and, and the surgeon at the time didn't provide me a lot of information about that. He seemed kind of embarrassed for me and, and seemed more interested in just reassuring me that, well, we removed it. So it's no longer a problem for you, but. And that's think, all that you were told. That's all that you were told. Yeah. It was pretty much all that I was told. And you, was, you never learned more about your genetics or anatomy or do you no. know uh, about the rest of your anatomy? I don't because I never had genetic testing done. I have read. I mean, your body, like, did you get my body getting your period or I was getting very irregular and very painful periods. And, um, and I was masculinized as a female because I did have some facial hair, like even before I started taking testosterone, because I was transitioning, I did have more body hair and facial hair than the average. And they didn't, they, I'm, I'm guessing they didn't do any hormonal, uh, tests. They did do some hormonal tests and I did have higher than average female testosterone. Okay. So which, you know, probably accounts for both being same sex attracted and being masculinized as a female. So it makes sense to me in hindsight, but it was all very confusing at the time because I learned this and then it's like, Oh, well, I guess that in some ways it, it validated my perception of myself as, as male but in other ways confused me. And, and I think the surgeon's reaction, the way that he seemed embarrassed for me, it, it really planted that idea that this is something to be ashamed of. And um, so it was, it was in one hand validating, but also confused me even more. Like, what do I do with this information? Yeah. Right. Um, I did Sorry, start. In what year? What? So that was, would have been. What year was this? 1990. 
1992 or three, roughly. And this was in a, some small hospital. By then I was living in a, in a medium sized city. So when I was 18 and graduated from high school, I immediately moved to the city to go to college and, and was having um, these attacks of pain. And that's when that was discovered. So I was oh my God. out of my community at that point. Um, you know, what is really notable, I think, is how many stories I hear where one person's response during a critical juncture like this or critical, you know, delivery of really difficult information, one person's expression or words that they use, like for even girls who get their period, the way that that's characterized it or, or, you know, it have such lifelong consequences and um, like one, you know, I think really positive change of course, over time, and that is spreading, which is, you know, much more sensitivity around just being, having differences. And I, I do, I personally like the language of difference over disorder when it's not something that absolutely has to be corrected or is causing real medical problems. You know, the destigmatization of these really complex differences and conditions. Um, yeah. And, and my mom, sorry, the other, Sorry. Sorry. Um, it, tur- it turns out that it does run in, in my family, which I didn't know, because it was only about a year ago that my my parents have been supportive of, of my transition. Um, and I think there's there's homophobia in their support, unfortunately. I mean, when, yes. my dad, my dad had yeah. said, like, well, that's better than the gay thing. I'd rather he didn't explicitly say I'd rather have a straight son than a gay daughter. But that was yeah, that was of that, course. that was the implication. Um, yeah. So that part is bittersweet. But it was only a, a year ago that my mom said something to the effect of, do you think being trans has anything to do with being a hermaphrodite? And that's the word she used. And I said, well, well, I, I do have an intersex condition. And um, so I think for her, I don't know if it was just that she was ashamed to mention it or if she didn't understand when I was saying intersex and she was using the word hermaphrodite, I don't know if she realized those, I was, we were talking about the same thing because the language has changed over the years, but right. she said that it runs in her side of the family which I didn't, I didn't know until a year ago. So there's just this, all this like miscommunication and and veils of secrecy and shame around all of this stuff. And it's, so it's only now that I'm now sort of unpacking all of it and um, what a wild journey it's been, but um, all these pieces that just a a series of unfortunate events, you know, kind of added up to, to my transition. And um, the, so much of, I think what the three of you from my point of view it because you know i just fit into the female woman thing right so i don't have to think about it but i do feel like what you three are talking about you've all had a lot of some painful experiences that to some degree are caused by not having much flexibility in the in gender roles right and in in there are some societies that have you know, a third gender for people who, you know, mostly for males who don't fit in. And then that seems to alleviate the, a lot of the discomfort. Um, and it's, you know, I think we're getting to a place where there is a lot more flexibility in, in roles, but culturally, of course, it varies so, so much, even, you know, within the United States, but of course, um, across different countries and cultures. And so I'm personally 
and I don't know how you feel about this, but I'm very pro relaxing those norms as much as possible to make it possible for like my own, my kid is a boy. He's 12. He's heterosexual, I believe, but he went through a phase where he wore dresses and, you know, that in Cambridge, I wrote about this in the book too, you know, in Cambridge, like that was at people were literally you go mom, like rewarding me when I walked to school with him. And I was just like, what the fuck? My kid's wearing a dress. Like I'm not a hero here and I shouldn't be. And he shouldn't be, and the school shouldn't be. It should just be like he's wearing a dress. It has to be clean. He has to his he has to have, his hair has to look decent. I don't care, you know what it is. But like, I wish that he could just go through that. It's not a big deal. People aren't like clapping on the street. You know, it's just whatever. That's what he wants to do. Who cares? That's my my personal view. I know there are a lot of people who do not um, agree with that, but to me that, and I just wonder of course, looking just given what you've just told me, which is just a tiny slice of what, of course, what you experienced, if the world were more like that, if you would have transitioned, because all like, at least for Mars and Aaron T, it seems like you did not have, and maybe also you, um, Aaron K in ways, you didn't have references for what you were experiencing. And it was super different. You didn't know what to make of it. You didn't know what your options were. Um, so now we have the internet, of course, but the option is drugs, trans. surgery, yeah. pharmaceutical yeah. industry, medical device, pharmaceutical industry making. I mean, to me, there, there's somebody who's making a lot of the money here. Yeah, um, yeah, I agree. Like, I, I think it's easy to attach to the trans narrative when you're confused and just needing a narrative. There are answers some... in a community and yeah. like identities and groups, and people are so enthusiastic. Yeah, the problem is I don't think that the narrative okay. is correct, right? It, like that we're all just trans and we were born trans, and there's so much more sort of rich detail, complexity, and complexity um, that trans narrative is, is hiding. And, and that's, that's our goal, you know, as an organization is, and, and with the podcast is just to open up those stories so that we can get to, to the individuals, um, not just this, this political movement. Um, but you're the trans community. You're a monolith, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is all fascinating. Of course, we haven't even talked about hormones yet, but. Um... Oh, can I just say something about what you touched up on? Yeah. Uh, I do agree with uh, relaxing things a bit. Um, unfortunately, apparently relaxing means going to the extreme of just transition, transitioning kids now. Um, but there, yeah, but to there, me, that's a, it is the opposite, the opposite. In a way of relaxing. Yeah, no, it, it is. Yeah. It is. I, I was just kind of like saying, like, I, I don't even know. Do we know what relaxing could mean today? Um, because we're doing that, the whole trans kid uh, thing, which I, I think it's com- completely wrong. Um, but then the other aspect here that I have seen, um, especially on Twitter with a lot of detransitioned uh, females is uh, the shame in being um, a butch, uh, a butch female. Um, and then I, I've also seen this a lot with some uh, not detrans males, but I do hear it in their story that there's this shame in being a very feminine male. You get made fun of, bullied. So um, I do agree, obviously, relaxing these gender norms would, would help. But to me, like, I feel like it's a bigger issue, the the shame that comes with being, you know, not like the other boys or not like the other girls. That's kind of like, how do we fix that? Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and just along those lines, I'm, I'd be curious to hear what you think of the pronoun um, trend. Because uh, I sort of have the feeling that we are now overemphasizing the categories and you must choose a category and identify with it and broadcast it. And I, I feel like that only emphasizes that you got to fit in somewhere rather than just open it up and be male. And I mean, I understand, and I understand it and I'm not, I don't mean to criticize that um, because I think there's something to it. And I think it's, is an effort to, in a way show that gender is, is flexible or fluid or whatever. But I also feel like um, it's restrictive in, in some sense and overemphasizes um, norms that you, and you're supposed to adhere to some norm. Uh, so, so I don't much, know. So much of the trans uh, movement is met, is phrased as is kind of packaged uh, to look like it's gender uh, um, uh, expansive and destroying gender binaries. When in fact, you know, when in, in actuality, it's it's making them much more stringent and right. um, must be opted into. And um, yeah, so it's just it's just funneling, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, funneling people into these into these these boxes that it's essentially saying that it's destroying um, is is really you know counterintuitive to the stated the stated. You know, so, do you would you use pronoun your pronouns or I mean the trans the few trans men who I know don't want to draw any attention to any of that they just want to live their lives like they're not interested in ha- going around a room and having everybody say, talk about their gender, because that's the last, like, uh, that is the last thing they want to do. So I'm, I mean, how do you guys feel about that? Or can you imagine how you might have felt as a young person, like in my classroom? Because I know there's, you know, a lot of people think that that is the thing to do is start on the first day, everybody say their pronouns and their identities. And um, that makes me uncomfortable, but I don't, yeah, I you feel know, uncomfortable to too. You know, when we start business meetings and stuff with announcing our pronouns, it it it, it feels ritualistic and it it and you know sort of virtual sig- signaling, but it, it doesn't help me as a trans person at all. You know, just that the people are sort of just saying these mantras over and over and over again doesn't make me feel more comfortable or more safe. I just I just feel sort of embarrassed. I agree. Also, another thing in regards to that is you know, you're talking about a classroom, a classroom full of kids, let's say eight years old, if they weren't thinking about gender, and now we're announcing ourselves with uh, a pronoun, now they're thinking about gender. And yeah, that's, and that's the most choose. bizarre thing. Yeah, they have to choose. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't like it. I don't like it. It's it's very, it's very backwards and, and embarrassing and also unnecessary, I think. Um, it also doesn't count for people like, like us. Generally, the point of transition is to just kind of like, you know, go on with our lives, not to stand out and say, Hey, by the way, my pronouns are he, him. Um, it's, yeah. Right. Well, it used to be that, that, that there was a lot of support and the whole point of transitioning was to just exist in the world as the opposite sex. And, and we put a lot of work into doing that successfully so that, you know, so that we, we didn't have to go around telling people well, that you must use this pronoun and, and this name, like we just put the work into transitioning successfully so that the world would just read us as as we wanted to be read and and people refer to me as he because that just naturally comes out of their mouth right it's not because i'm uh, it's compulsory that they must use a certain pronoun 
in the in the butch lesbian community, it's not uncommon to call the butches by male pronouns. And again, that's mm-hmm. not compulsory. It's just sort of built into the culture. To, it's not yeah. uncommon to call them boys or sir or yeah. Um, but there was no delusion that that's because we actually were men. It was just a nod to our masculinity and our social role. So, but you don't think that formalizing that process, say in a college classroom, would be helpful? Because maybe, I mean, um, it's not, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess it, it's not that I, I would refer to a student in the classroom in the third person anyway. <laughs> So, yeah. uh, I mean, that makes it a little funny because I would just use their name or say you, um, but I could see, you know, there might be an instance where a pronoun was needed. Um, yeah. So it is hard to know. I, I do think, de- you know, maybe declaring an email and stuff is one thing. And then, but then there's going around in the uh, classroom. Um, but I guess, you know, there's just different people have different needs and ideas there. But but when you do introduce it in the classroom, it's something then that everyone feels they have to participate in, even if they're not comfortable. Because then if they don't, everyone's going to wonder what. Uh, yeah. And the vast majority of people, I think, um, how do I put it? You know, like the, the visual cues that we, we see match the pronouns right. that they want to use the vast majority right. of time of the time. Right. Right. So, right. And, and when the, when in the butch community, when we were called, you know, boys or, or sir or whatever, I mean, that wasn't based on having a round circle conversation to announce our pronouns. Right. Just, we, there were visual cues, you know, that prompted that because as we were obviously right. more, more masculine and, um, so it's, it's, okay. yeah, it's, it's the formalization of it and yeah. the ritualization of it that I feel uncomfortable with. Okay. That's, this is all such, so helpful. And now I think um, we should get, get to the hormone part. And um, this is great to have all this context. I have a lot of questions. Um, so I'm just gonna, okay. So you all three um, started with, uh, you went to a, I assume you went to some gender specialist or d- did everybody go through the traditional medical route or did anybody get their drugs off the internet? Um, or like, we, did you have just uh, standard I think decent th- medical care? I think their experience is probably totally different from what I did. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know who, who wants to I, go. I went to a clinic in town that was known to do to to be specialists in okay. care. And Aaron T, same thing or? No, I, I just went to my doctor and I said okay. that I had gender dysphoria, which I had just learned the term uh, online. And um, I mean, obviously, I always had it, but it's like, okay, this is what I can say. You know, it, it explains it. I told my doctor I had gender dysphoria. I wanted to transition to be male. And uh, she said, yep. Uh, normally I would require um, six months therapy, but you're an adult. You sound like you know what you're okay. doing. So I'm going to refer you to an endocrinologist who doesn't require a letter uh, for therapy. So I went to see that endocrinologist and he said, no, I absolutely do require a letter from a therapist, uh, but let's just have a conversation about it. Within 15 minutes, he had written me a, pre- written me a prescription for testosterone. Okay. Um, so okay. it was very easy. Yeah. And Mars, you had to get the, get dr- the, testosterone on your own? Um, not necessarily on my own. I, I did attempt to go to gender, a gender therapist for maybe like five months, but after three months, he was willing to, uh, prescribe me testosterone. I didn't feel like that was the right move because it was fairly quick. 
Yeah. Um, so basically I stopped seeing the gender therapist and I kind of just um, did my own work on, on my own, kind of trying to figure out what I want to do. And I, I think a year or something after that, I then decided, okay, I'm going to do this. Um, but I didn't want to have to go through a therapist all over again. So I went yeah. to informed consent. Okay. And um, I thought that what would happen was I go into my appointment, they do blood work and I pick up my testosterone uh, prescription the next day or the next week or whatever. Uh, but actually I, uh, I went to informed consent, went to my appointment and within 20 minutes when it was over, she was like, well, uh, whenever you're ready, your testosterone is available at the, uh, you know, pharmacy down the street or whatever. Okay. And, yeah. Okay. So do, did you, so did you all, you all just started with the normal dose. There was nothing unusual. Did, how did you take it? What form I, did you take it in? Um, intramuscular. Um, okay. is how I, but I started at half the normal dose. Okay. So, um, so I you did, worked up slowly over time. Yeah. About five years because actually when on just half the dose, I was already in mid male or lower to mid male range. Um, okay. so I stayed at that for the first five years. Um, Were five you in lower years. to mid male range because you already had relatively high testosterone for a, a woman? I, I don't know. I was never tested as such. Yeah, I, okay. I don't you know. I was never, yeah, but, um, but I, yeah, I was just, I was on, yeah, half the dose and until about, yeah, five years in. And then that was doubled to 0.5 cc's um, okay. per week. Um, but I mean, I did, I mean, I like, you know, I, I think it's likely that I already had high testosterone, um, you know, again, late periods. Or but you would periods, have known if you were even, uh, even above the female range, you would have started to get facial hair and acne and et cetera. So you probably could, you really probably were not significantly higher um, than the normal female range. Well, I definitely had like like dark lip hair, and I had a happy trail and stuff like that prior to prior to to actually injecting okay. testosterone. But I think that's that unusual. But you can get happy trail anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so you injected once a week. Mm -hmm. Okay, and Aaron, how did you take yours? I also injected once a week. And Mars, you and sorry. Same. Okay. So I'm just going to fire some questions. So what I write about in the book, I'm going to tell you, 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 I think already read that part of the book, but I'll just say what I learned from my interviews. And uh, so I interviewed a male to female trans person, a female to male trans person, a female to male and back to female detransitioner. And I also interviewed a 12 year old male who was just starting puberty blockers. Um, so, and then what I did was I, uh, researched the relevant literature on the mostly psychological behavioral effects of these huge testosterone changes. Um, but I also got into the, some of the physical changes, particularly changes in the voice, changes in hair growth, changes in muscle distribution, obviously, which are profound. So, you know, going from female to male, you can have much more sort of faster and more dramatic convincing changes than going in the other direction. Cause it's hard to go, you know, from a fully masculinized frame uh, in particular with a deep voice, you really can't undo that, nor can you undo the uh, effects of testosterone and puberty on like facial hair, uh, et cetera, completely anyway. So, but um, the main effects, you guys already know, but just to summarize, especially from um, female to male. So 
I am a woman. And part of why I wanted to get into this part of why I'm obsessed with this hormone is because I want to know what it's like to be a man. And I um, came out of writing the book with a lot of sympathy, a more sort of empathy, I guess, not, I don't know if it's empathy, um, compassion for the particular kinds of struggles that men face, particularly around sex and aggression, obviously, because the literature on the effects of testosterone in transition. And you, I'm just saying this because I want you to tell me where I'm getting it wrong and where I'm getting it right from your personal experiences is that first of all, and, and I just want to also say that in people, male people as fetuses are exposed to very high levels of testosterone in utero. So you guys, none of you had this Aaron K you might have had something we don't know. You might have had unusual, like much higher than Mars or Aaron, who might have had higher for a female, but that would be within the typical female range, just on the high end for Aaron T and Mars. But Aaron K, we don't know what you experienced in utero. And it, I'm guessing you, you know, you could have had significantly higher T exposure as a fetus. But for typical males, there are very high levels of testosterone in utero that the testes are producing that shape the brain that, and we know this from research, especially in non-human animals and the human literature from looking at differences of sexual development, especially um, is totally consistent with what we see from experiments in animals that you can manipulate masculine behavior, especially play. And all of you talked about masculine play as kids. And this is like one of the number one sex differences that occurs before puberty, right? Before you have the huge pubertal differences in testosterone and estrogen. So kids, little boys and girls are different, partly because of culture, of course, but it's interacting with these differences that we're born with that lead males to prefer rough and tumble boyish play, like physical play with other boys like that. We know you can manipulate that in mammals because little male mammals do the same thing way more than female mammals. And you can just manipulate that by manipulating the fetal testosterone environment. So we know that's what happens. So the point for this of this part of the point of this digression is that when you change your testosterone levels in adulthood, yes, you're changing. This is called the activational um, phase, right? So you have the organizational phase of testosterone, which is in very early life. And then you have the activational phase where, um, in males, when testosterone goes up, it activates those previously masculinized neural structures in ways that are different than it does for females who didn't have that early testosterone exposure and whose brain is not masculinized in that way. So the point is that whatever changes you experienced, by going from, um, female to male levels, you know, are probably not the same as what a male a natal male would experience right in puberty, because that testosterone is acting on a already masculinized brain. Okay. However, that's just like one big sort of caveat. What I learned and what I sort of had known, you know, from, I've been doing this stuff for a long time, but I found this, this evidence really extremely compelling that male puberty, first of all, is overwhelming to ab everyone I have spoken with who is male says that 
they're overwhelmed with uh, a desire for sex, that it's urgent. It's they're getting erections all the time. Um, they struggle with how to relate to uh, the opposite sex. Usually gay men, it's something different. Gay men have the same sexual feelings, but they don't necessarily have the awkwardness um, of heterosexual men because the target is something they don't understand. And gay men kind of get it uh, with each other. And so my heart opened a little bit for that struggle. If you're on the receiving end of it as a woman, you're just kind of like, fuck you, you horny bastard, leave me alone. Um, sorry to put it that way, but I can get, you know, you don't want to be objectified. You don't want, I mean, in a sense, yeah, I want to be attractive. I want people to find me sexually attractive. I'm married, whatever. But, you know, of course, in the, before I got married, <laughs> I'm just going to put my foot in my mouth. Um, but the point is, I get, you know, you don't want to be um, the just a sex object. You want to be taken seriously as a full human being. And you can, that's not always happening. And I have this insight into that now, which makes me feel a little bit more um, uh, sympathetic or I don't know if it's empathetic. I'm getting confused. Um, so when you guys went from, and I assuming that you didn't, none of you have had surgery, but I don't know uh, if that's the case. And we don't even have to get into that now. Um, but going from female to male, especially in the early part of that transition, uh, the literature and from the, the scientific literature on the effects and my interviews suggest that it's akin to a male puberty. And that's what I write about in the book in this very dramatic way, which might've been annoying if it seems like that was overblown. And one big point is there's huge amount of variation. I'm sure you guys all had very different experiences. Not everybody feels like, wow, I'm, I'm out of control horny or that their sexual orientation changes, but that was a common response that I got and that the literature supported is that's one of the number one changes is like, holy shit, this is how the opposite sex lives. I mean, I'm, so that's, yeah. Okay. So that I just said a lot and I'm would love to hear just the sex part. And then we can talk about anger or tears or aggression or whatever after, but the sex thing seems like a big deal. Yeah. Initially I would say that that's true. Like initially it's um, really ramped up my sex drive. And then over, over time that, that kind of mm -hmm. leveled out again and became manageable, but initially it was, it was fast and dramatic. Can you get you yeah, like, give us any, um, yeah, as much as you want to say about that, because I want to get it like I want to really because we don't women. Yeah, we go through it and sex drive goes up, but it's not from what I can glean. It is not like it is for men. It's not or for people who just take uh, male levels of testosterone. Yeah, I would say before testosterone, my sex drive was more relational. It had right. like when I dated it, it. it had more to do with the, the connection and, you know, it wasn't like an immediate like physical response. It, it, it was more relational, but at, once I started taking testosterone, it was a much more just physical response. So what does that mean? So what, I guess what I want to understand is, um, is it like the female is a body it's yes, she has a personality and all that, but it's just like, there's an attraction to the physical person almost more than the whole person. Is that 
right? Yeah, because prior to testosterone, it was uncommon for me to just see somebody and immediately, I mean, I, I would definitely see people and say, well, she's attractive, but I didn't have the same immediate, um, you know, sexual response just from visual cues. It, it, that was usually something that developed as I got to know somebody. Right. Whereas after testosterone, it, it was much more just visual cues where I could see somebody and felt a physical attraction. So but prior to taking testosterone, I didn't really understand that about male sexuality, that, that right. how, you, how could he just be attracted to random women that you don't even know and, and immediately want to sleep with them? I, I just, I couldn't relate to that at all, but I understand that more once I started you- taking testosterone. Do you understand the desire to manipulate the target? I'll just say the woman, um, do you, to manipulate that person to get your needs met? Yes, I do. I, do I can understand that. Yeah. I mean, that was always mediated by the fact that I spent 30 years of my life as female and, and hated that attention from men. So there was always that battle of understanding, well, I wouldn't, I don't want to behave in certain ways that I would have found repulsive as a female. And, and that, so there was always that internal struggle. Who won? Uh, over time, I'd say, I would say the social part of me won. The, the, the part but when of- you were in the throes of it um, and you were like that, when that need was really strong and you were really driven, did you ever, because yeah, as a woman, it is, you, we don't do that we don't manipulate well we manipulate men for sure but not to get sex usually right of course there's overlap and it's not like all the women are like this and all men are like that but on average i think that men do a lot of men do that it just comes naturally and they didn't have the experience of living as a woman to know how shitty that actually is Mm -hmm. to be on the receiving end of um so you're saying now living as a man you get that desire to do I that. get it yeah I don't think I've ever let myself okay go there and behave that way I, I Mars the- has gone there <laughs> <laughs> I have I'm not can you lie. talk about that like were you can you talk about it were you at, um, yeah <clears throat> no just kind of like comparing before transition um there are very few times that I think I attempted to manipulate uh for you know sex but not very often, honestly. And even still, the few times that I recall that I did do that in the in the past, there was already some sort of uh, relationship there, uh, be it a friendship or or somebody that I had uh, encountered multiple times. Yeah. So it wasn't just a random stranger. Yeah. Um, and I've always been very much uh, very paranoid about uh, sleeping around because uh, I find STDs to be disgusting. Um, so I I was never the type to do that. But then. Um, Honestly, one of the biggest explosions, actually, the, that sounds horrible. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, uh, I, I walked into that one. What I'm saying is um, the, the sexual response that I had for so many things um, within whatever it was, a month or two after transitioning was pretty intense. I felt like I was going crazy at the time I had a girlfriend and, um, you know, I found myself uh, wanting to, to watch porn sometimes, like in a very uh, just more I don't know like 
I just, uh, I apparently needed to just relieve myself way more often uh, within that first month. So, sorry, do you mean masturbate? Yes. Yeah, no, (laughs) no, this is very common. This is in the literature. I mean, this, and Uh, plus there's a big sex Mm. difference in masturbation. Yeah. Of course, men masturbate way more than women. Obviously, they watch much more pornography and um, they report having a higher sex drive and also wanting more sexual novelty, more sexual partners. Um, but I don't, I didn't get a sense of that from the literature that trans men, yes, the libido went up, but I don't have a sense of the desire for sex, for, um, sexual variety. If that changed, uh, for you, is it the libido Um, more did the variety need for variety also go up? I think it's the libido more, but also, yeah. Okay. That's interesting. But yeah, yeah, it definitely, that, that went up and. I also think that because the libido went up, well, now I'm single, I don't have a girlfriend, but I think that because your libido goes up or for some of us anyway, then you'd start to expand your options, yeah. even though I would have never, you know, messed around with this girl from the bar who I think is kind of ugly, but my libido is saying, do it. And now I'm more likely to do it because yeah. all you're thinking about is sex, which is to me, um, it gave me a huge understanding and it's not to say this doesn't make it okay for uh, obviously men to cheat and things like that, but I get, I kind of get it now. I understand why their brain goes there. Um, you know, just like, uh, Aaron was talking about very, um, very subtle changes, right? I used to look at women and think, Oh, she's gorgeous. Um, and maybe I had fleeting thoughts of, you know, I wouldn't mind meeting her and, and things escalating, but, but now it's like, sometimes I catch myself looking at a woman's, uh, you know, breasts or ass, and I'm thinking immediately sex, you know, and um, can I ask a question about that? Yeah. When you see a woman's boobs or butt, so women obviously know this is a thing, right? We, you know, a lot of people are getting breast surgery and butt implants and everything. Mm. So we're aware that this is quite powerful since women will yeah. spend a huge amount of money and time and effort um, on those parts specifically. Um, but they might not understand exactly what goes on in a man who is like, boing, you know, it's working. The boobs are, are working on me. Um, what exact, what is the nature of the fantasy? Are you like imagining doing, having, doing something with her butt or her boobs or playing with them or like yeah. how, <laughs> I don't know. Cause we don't God. really okay. have this equal kind of. Like occasionally yeah, no, I, women I will imagine, yeah. you know, a guy mm-hmm. naked, he might look great naked, but that's not this like, yeah, I was gonna you don't say, go to the sort of pornography right away based on that particular woman. Are you willing to provide me details mm-hmm. about that? Or, you know, I was thinking suddenly it feels like Aaron T might be best for this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want a little detail. Give it a yeah. no, actually, you know what? I want to say two things and then, and then I'll let somebody else uh, jump in. So I, I don't uh, put it all out there too much, but, um, as far as visuals, I did find that changed a lot um, because it's not that I'd never seen the porn in the past, but uh, the visual, um, the visuals were so intense after taking testosterone. It was, it was What do you crazy. mean the visuals? Like tell sorry, sorry, women, because okay. okay. you were, so like, are, were one, like, mm-hmm. you know, you didn't know what was going on in the male right. mm-hmm. psyche. Women need, I really think, and okay. this is part of why I wanted to write my book that women want to really get it. It's good for us to get it. We need to be learning about this. 
um, we need as much information as possible. And you guys are in like the best position, I think, to provide some of that information. And it's okay. just interesting anyway. So, so when I, when I talk about visuals, I mean, I understand how porn is so um, appealing to men because masturbating without porn, when you're on testosterone, it's just not the same as uh, while you're on a testosterone and watching porn. It's almost Wait, sorry, like you, masturbating. Did I say that, say right? that sentence again? So uh, for a man or somebody taking testosterone to masturbate, watching porn uh, intense, it, it just, it, uh, it's more sexually satisfying than just than masturbating. being with a person. No I'm, no, I'm not talking about a person. I'm saying but that's that, a thing too. I think people are young kids are watching so much porn yeah, no, now absolutely. that that's also making it more that is a problem. Get aroused in person. What I just meant as far as not having a visual. Um, so I kind of understand. Oh, of this, course. Right? Yeah. You're just saying your fantasy versus versus porn. <laughs> yes, but that wasn't oh, like yeah, that yeah. wasn't that big of a deal uh, for me personally uh, okay. before uh, transitioning, and it changed. Like when I see, um, and I got to clarify. Actually, at this moment, I'm not on testosterone, so we can talk about that a little bit. Uh, okay. Because things have de declined now that I'm not on it. Um, so so I'm talking about when I was on testosterone. Um, when I would see a woman have, you know, she has cleavage or, uh, at the gym, you know, some girl has a really great ass and she's working out in front of me. It's, it's kind of impossible to not look. You're telling yourself don't stare, but also you want to look and women and, look too. I mean, yeah. I'm not like fantasizing about mm -hmm. the woman, but I am, if, you know, women really evaluate yeah. each other. And I'm also trying to imagine like, I'm like, wow, she has a great ass. I wonder what it is that the guy is thinking. Cause I'm thinking yeah. like, I want my butt to be like hers. It's not what the guy <laughs> right, is yeah. thinking, but women are comparing themselves to very attractive women. Yeah. So you're kind of studying what the other woman has, but, um, and I was, so you're just, yeah, I don't know. Like what goes on. You're just imagining yourself with the person. Yes, with you're, that you're, you're, I'm personally, um, and I was never somebody that was into, tits that much to be honest um but then i got yeah. testosterone and now i'm thinking i appreciate all of these breasts around me <laughs> and and i do think it's not a matter of you look at them and you think wow she has a really great ass or or breasts you're thinking or at least i i'm thinking wow i wonder what it looks like under the the clothes or i wonder yes. you know where could we go in the bedroom uh, what are my chances with her because i can't stop thinking about what i could do to her body you know and obviously some women will not like that but that is that is quite literally what you think of. No, and whatever. I, and, and so you're yeah. thinking like, not just, but so, cause I would think like, oh, I mean, just in terms of reproductively, you should be driven to have sex with her. Yeah. Right. right yeah. And the boobs are an indicate, the breasts are an indication of her reproductive value. Is it mm -hmm. worth your time and energy to have sex with her? Like theoretically, could she get pregnant? So you should be designed to be attracted to signals of high reproductive right. value I see what you're and, saying. and Obviously, hurt yeah. boobs and a small waist and a nice round butt with lots of energy on it in the right places means high estrogen, high reproductive value right. worth your time and energy. So it makes sense for you to start obsessing about her. Cause that's going to motivate you to go have sex with her and, mm -hmm. you know, spread exactly. your so I can genes. see how all of those things that you just listed mean a whole lot more to a, a biological male, obviously. So or somebody I, with high yeah. testosterone, yeah, and that's yeah, fair, what's yeah. interesting about the hormone is it's just the hormone changing mm -hmm. your brain 
right. To do, to help you reproduce. I mean, yes, you're not going to be reproducing in that particular way, but that is what the hormone does in animals. And that's Mm -hmm. what we are. And it's doing it to your brain, but it's amazing that suddenly you're interested in breasts. Like that's incredible. Right. No, absolutely. Uh, It definitely changes, changes your outlook on, on sex. I think even if, even if you fight it, you, you just can't. All right. What I want to add to, to, to this Thank is, you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so, no so my brain did go. This is awesome. <laughs> I mean, this is I'm, awesome. I'm, I'm I hope everybody this, sees this. Yeah. <laughs> on the same, the same trajectory here with what Mars and Aaron were saying is that, it, my, yes, sexuality became incredibly ob- objective, object-oriented, um, body parts. Um, so, like, again, I, when I was attracted to men previously, started taking testosterone, some out of the blue, it was it was breasts that I was attracted to. I was no, I was always repulsed by breasts because they reminded me of what was on me that I hated. But I was I went to this corner store to pick up something some evening. Again, it was like a matter of weeks on testosterone, and there was a Maxim cover with this beautiful woman with these gorgeous breasts and a small bikini. And suddenly, I was physically aroused, rather like out in in that, and then that pattern stayed. Um, but can I uh, just ask a technical question that yeah. my student who was transitioning described to me? Mm-hmm. And she, um, he had not had surgery and just talked about what was happening with his clitoris mm-hmm. and talked about constantly getting clitoral erections and that mm-hmm. there'd be way more sensation in the clitoris mm-hmm. and that it was intense and sharp. And, um, it's actually painful and one of the other first, things yeah. I learned, okay. So from the, oh, the research, and this is another thing I'd love to hear about is orgasm going from more diffuse and longer lasting off testosterone, whereas on testosterone, more sort of acute and spatially uh, focused on the genitals. Not everyone had this. And I heard from some people that it wasn't like that, but that's what was in the literature. And that is also what the people I interviewed described. But anyway, if you're willing to talk, can you talk about like physically what that arousal felt like when in your genitals, when you're on testosterone versus off, because obviously you were aroused as a living as a woman when you weren't Mm -hmm. on testosterone, but I don't recall, uh, yes, I'm going to reveal that. I don't recall like having a clitoral or yes, women who who get aroused do get a little bit of a clitoral erection. But from what I understand that then like really amps up and can be uncomfortable. Yeah, well, so at, so at first, because you get a lot of initial growth on testosterone, right? Yes, so your clitoris um, actually grows. Yeah, That's right. but then so so yes, arousal is is primarily focused um, uh, there. Uh, um, like you feel physically feel it, um, and that and that's where it where it's focused, I guess. Um, uh, but you feel like you need release, yes, in that area. Correct. Like, uh, uh yes. really. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's where it's isolated at, and and well, so so as far as the physical feeling of release, um, I, I, when I when I've talked to women about their their, especially since since after testosterone, I started having sex with women and having more insight as to how they experienced it. I always had a very different feeling of uh, of I've never had I've always had a very like a refractory period was absolutely necessary. Like I, I can't, I could never have multiple orgasms, which apparently is very common for most women, most females. Um, and I wouldn't and, say oh, most, I mean, oh, a, a okay. lot of women don't have orgasms. Oh, okay, so, okay. No, I don't think okay. multiple is common for most. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh. And then, um, also, um, the, uh, um, what was I saying? The, uh, 
uh, that, that intense isolated or I always had those kind of intense isolated not whole body okay. experience or anything okay. like that so that that always stayed the same um I think okay I think, yeah it was it's just the the, but the when, need for it became much more intense the need became much more intense um and well, I want to kind of pick up on what they were saying as well when you talked about the whole manipulation thing it's one thing that I can't relate with with men is that coercion like the long game plan I've never understood that <laughs> so like I once I started having much more physical immediate uh response to physical sexual stimulus um it's more like okay either i have an opportunity to go take care of this personally right now or um try to distract myself in some sense but i never understood how how uh, no matter how long i've been on testosterone no matter how i can kind of relate with men sexually in certain ways i'll never understand that like that that long game mentality where it's like i want to have sex with this person and let's see how many days or weeks or how much uh, you know emotional energy to, to put in to make this thing happen. I've never been able to relate with that. Or That's what I that. think Mars was, was very illuminating there because there's some, there's like an obsession that starts mm, mm. right about a particular woman or her body parts or whatever is what it sounds like. And it's mm. hard to stop thinking about a particular woman and she's kind of a target is what it okay. sounds like. Right, 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 right. I yeah. don't know. And I never understood. I never could, re could relate with that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And, no. uh, so now that uh so i've been i've been for for medical uh reasons i've been taking a break from testosterone not yeah. because i actually want to um and um as as bizarre as it might sound to some people uh i find it uh almost extremely dysphoric to to masturbate now because it is once again uh a different experience uh, kind of like the old experience and and i just hate it um it's it's crazy but because now um my orgasms are back to uh, mostly i guess body to whereas uh, when i was on testosterone it was more focused on that area and it's just different and i don't know again i know a lot of uh being a dysphoric adult is a mind game but it really trips me out um i do find though that i'm i'm not thinking once again about sex as intensely or as often but overall, all of it just reminds me of being female. And, and, and I don't particularly, it trips me out. I don't know. So can I just then, because it's already, I don't know how the podcast is, get, it's already 437, but um, this is great. And I, I want to make sure that I also ask. So first of all, this is, I mean, I could keep going on the sex stuff. This is so rich and interesting. Um, but the other big thing, so you got, I was crying with you guys before or tearing up right before we started the podcast. And this is something that I struggle with. I'm embarrassed by it. I can't really control it. And I wrote about this also in the book, partly because it's my own personal struggle. So I um, specifically asked the people I interviewed about crying and emotionality and also really dove into the literature on this topic and what happens in female to male and then in male to female when you change your testosterone levels. And it was totally, again, a lot of variation, but the theme is crying really um, abates significantly. Like the tears do not come anymore or they come very rarely. And what I did hear um, anecdotally, so there's an assumption that aggression would go up 
However, I did not find that. And I investigated that. And I think part of the reason is most people are not physically uh, aggressive. So um, to start with, like even most men are not physically aggressive. And so people who are transitioning, say from female to male, you might not see any difference in physical aggression. And also female, there is not a huge difference, sex difference in low levels of physical aggression, which is where most people are aggressive, throwing things, pushing, hitting women do a lot of that. Actually, men do more of the very serious, um, physical injury. That's a huge sex difference, but there, it's not a huge sex difference. If you're talking about low level physical aggression and most people don't do very much. So the point is that when you go from female to male levels, there doesn't tend to be any discernible increase in physical aggression, but people did describe a, and this is consistent with the literature, a dulling of emotions overall, uh, a reduced ability to access a wide range of emotions um, suppression of tears for the most part, except the emotion that is retained, uh, where people, that people can access is anger. So it's not that anger goes up. It's just that it's not squashed like the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm curious to hear how that resonates with you guys. If that's consistent with your experiences, Aaron Kay, uh, maybe you want to. Yeah, I've been nodding a lot as, as you've been talking, because yeah. Yeah, I relate to that very much that I, I, and that happened pretty quickly um, when I started testosterone. Before it was the almost, physical change, right? Yeah. So that's one of the really interesting things. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think that's one of the first changes that I would have noticed is just that <clears throat> my emotions in general seem to, to level out. I was never a big crier, <clears throat> excuse me. I was never a big crier um, even before transition, but yeah. Aaron Terrell and I talked about the, a little, this a little bit recently uh, that I wouldn't. I, I definitely notice a difference with, with crying that, that, that I feel it welling up, but it's like, it just, it's like, there's a ceiling to it and, and it doesn't make its way into, you know, yep. my eyes. But um, you feel, do you feel like the same, the same vulnerable or pain or whatever emotion is present in yeah. you? You're aware of it, but it, you cannot express it. Yeah, I would. I that's how I would describe it. I, I'm still able to cry for sentimental things, and, and yeah. this is the part that that Aaron and I talked about. That you know, watching a sappy movie or something when something is is cute or sentimental or sweet, I can, I I seem to cry more than I ever had before. But when it comes to okay. crying out of sadness or frustration. I don't remember. Well, I was the crying that I did before the podcast was not really sadness or frustration. It's like an empathetic cry. You know, it's like someone else is in pain. Um, And that is where there is some evidence that testosterone inhibits empathy. And so I don't know if it's, you know, because men do need male animals do need to compete with each other for status and mates. And if you're going to beat the shit out of someone or kill them, you cannot be super sensitive to your competitors pain say, but, but women might, you know, cap their ability to kill or inflict in, inflict serious injury for various reasons. And because they have to protect themselves physically for one thing, cause that is better for their reproductive success and men can benefit reproductively by being more physically aggressive. And it may be that, that empathy or those vulnerable emotions tend to interfere with that ability, right? So that testosterone might have some effect on that, um, those emotions. 
Um, so it's interesting that you might feel them, but don't show them. So it might be adaptive for you to have them, but not to signal it or to let those kind of really overwhelm your decision-making or something. Um, and I'm just sort of thinking out loud now because that yeah. is an, it's an interesting. Cause where effect. I might've cried I mean, before yeah. due to frustration, like if I was frustrated with something like my wife, when she's frustrated, she starts crying. Whereas if I get frustrated, nice. I, that's when I get mad. Cause I, cause I'm not able to release that frustration and it, you know, through crying, like I used to be able to. If you could reflect back when you were living as a woman, did you ever feel frustration? Um, well, you weren't in a heterosexual relationship, but um, frustration with men not being able to express themselves, maybe verbally or talk about their emotions, or was that ever for any of you, any kind of an issue when you were living as women? And do you have different insight into that now? Uh, personally, no, I was never frustrated about that. However, I did often wonder why that was, and now I understand why. So yeah, that's, that's all I have on that. Okay. I, I, what about um, Aaron T? Yeah, I, I, that was never an issue for me. I was, I was always made fun of for being like a robot, and so I was the, I was the one who was quite emotionally, um, you know, held in, you know, kind of subdued, right. not very emotionally expressive. Um, definitely not a crier. Like Aaron, Aaron K was just saying, you know, now I'll watch a, a sap be moved or sad right. movie, start crying. Never would have been in the case before. So that is kind of the opposite of what, what you normally hear. Um, I was never a crier before. Well, uh, yeah. Cause you guys were more masculinized, I think as kids too, or as younger people. Yeah. yeah. So maybe that has something to do with why you didn't have that kind of need or, fr- or feel that frustration. I did have a tendency to make fun of actual males for being emotionally expressive. And now I feel bad about that in retrospect, um, just with a more, you know, uh, you know, more, uh, more yeah. sensitivity as I get older. But I remember basically being like, well, I'm fine with this. Why aren't you, you know, like, it's kind of like, you know, man up sort of stuff that I, you know, feel shamed about now because if, you know, being kind of stoic kind of came naturally to me. Um, but no, so I, I don't really have anything, um, the sex stuff is where I where I now can empathize with men in a way that I was frustrated yeah. before is like is like being very sexually object uh, you know sexually objectifying others or being really motivated sexually or just um, that that on one hand I can under better understand why males behaved in certain ways that I didn't understand before um, and on one hand, I'm kind of frustrated that I was being misled in certain ways. I didn't realize I was being misled. Um, and then, and, and, but then also it's like, okay, wait, I, I can also have, have empathy for, um, for just the intensity of, of that, um, that drive, I guess. But, but in, with emotions, I was, yeah, never, uh, never really. Uh, right. Yeah. I, I have a, I want to say something. Um, uh, I guess more of a question to you, Carol, is how much of this do you think is, uh, men adapting to uh you know obviously they have they're, they're, there's this competitive uh, nature to to being a man i guess my question that i wanted to raise on on this topic is how much uh how much of uh, of not being able to cry or having a tough time crying is uh, a part of just adapting to this i guess sort of male culture where you don't want to appear like the weak man right Um, the thing that's interesting, so there are these big cross-cultural differences in crying and emotionality and like the UK. So my husband's British, he's not emotional. I'm super emotional. 
So that's the sex difference, right? So men everywhere mm-hmm. are more emotional, sorry, are less emotionally expressive than women. But uh, like in the UK, the sex difference is smaller because men are, um, sorry, the sex difference is greater overall because um, men are less emotionally expressive than in other places. Um, so, but overall, everybody's less emotionally expressive, sorry, in the UK. I'm not saying this very clearly. So there are cross-cultural differences in, in um, emotionality, but uh, the sex difference persists everywhere. But what's interesting is that the emotionality changes, particularly the crying changes very, very quickly with testosterone in both directions. So that when um, men, when males transition and uh, block their testosterone, they, a whole new world of emotional expression opens up to them. Those emotional changes happen very fast with testosterone changes in the direction that you would predict. So stopping testosterone opens up emotions in a way that seems just female typical before the body changes. And that happens across the board. So that is why I think that uh, culture there plays a role and can shape that sex difference and shape the way that emotions are expressed overall and kind of what's allowed in a particular society, but that it really is the hormone that explains this sex difference that's present pretty much everywhere. Thank you so much for being on here and doing this. And um, if at all possible, I think we had so much content to cover here and probably uh, uh, we, we could talk for hours. And so I don't know if you would at all be willing to perhaps uh, maybe come back another time. I would love to come back and I loved talking to you. I would love to come back. And um, awesome. it's been great. I could talk to you for hours. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.